Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The first rule of the Bee's Knees cocktail is to note that bees themselves don't actually have knees. I was doing some research on this one for the intro here, and it turns out that bees, like all insects, have six joints in each of their legs. And there's nothing particularly remarkable about any of them. This probably led to the original 18th century coining of the phrase, which actually used to describe something that was small and insignificant. Only during the Roaring Twenties did it then transform into an idiom used to denote something that was cool and awesome. And that probably came about purely because of the alliteration. So bee's knees, not really that notable. But the cocktail, well, that's a different story. A simple sour constructed from gin, honey and lemon, this drink absolutely falls into the cool and awesome rather than insignificant camp beyond its pleasing sweet and sour profile and the added complexity of gin. The backstory of this cocktail is a belter. And who's going to be leading us into the hive today, you ask? Well, that'd be Sam Nellis, the head bartender and beverage director at Caledonia Spirits, a Vermont producer of honey-infused gin, among other delights. You know how it goes over here, listener. We like it when things neatly line up. And Sam is not just a wealth of knowledge on drinks. He also has a ton of experience tasting honey and has spent his fair share of time in a bee suit. This is the man who puts the bar in Bar Hill Gin. And he's here today talking bees knees on the Cocktail College podcast. Sam Nellis on the Cocktail College podcast. Welcome, Sam. How's it going? It's going great. Hi, Tim. Well, uh, happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Looking forward to, to getting into all things bees knees today. Absolutely. It's a delicious cocktail. Sure is. And, you know, we're talking here pre-prohibition cocktail, also pre-prohibition idiom for the name, the bee's knees. What a name it is. Yes, it's a funny name that, um, you know, means the best, uh, you know, and it, it is a pretty tasty cocktail. So the name does pretty much live up to it, which is great. It was kind of found with a, a handful of other animal related, relatively nonsense phrases, you know, like uh, the the eel's hip or the cat's pajamas and are you familiar with the one that we use across the atlantic across the pond in the uk which one is that slightly more vulgar i will warn (laughs) folks here but the the dog's bollocks is a is a popular one across there um i also used to work for a chef from north london who made it slightly more pg with the uh, he used to go with the dog's danglers so there you go danglers, perfect I don't think anyone wants to drink that cocktail, though. Doesn't sound as appealing, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But we are talking about a pre-prohibition cocktail here, and this is one of those drinks with a remarkable history, specifically tied to the person who who invented the drink. Um, So let's start with that. Let's dive into that. What can you tell us about the backstory of the bee's knees? Sure. Um, the inventor was a man by the name of Frank Myers, and he was Austrian-born, part Jewish, um, who kind of got very well known for working at the the Ritz in Paris, which is still open today. Currently, the bar it used to have a different name, but in the 90s, they changed it to the Hemingway Bar because of 
Hemingway frequented it um, quite frequently, which I feel like there's a lot of bars around the world that can claim that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Frank apparently got his his uh, start in New York at a bar on, near Madison Square and um, then left probably because Prohibition had started and wanted to continue his craft, um, left to, to Paris and open, open that, that bar as the, the bar manager. And he was um, very, very focused on, on great cocktails, but as well as hospitality. He, would, he started off, I think it was actually a head bartender was his title. And he, he said that as the head bartender, he wants to be actually on the front, in the front of the bar, hosting guests and greeting them. He was known for meeting some of his regulars at the front door and helping them with their luggage and just really kind of an all around hospitality, um, man. He wrote a, he wrote a little book called the artistry of mixing drinks a little bit later than the bees knees was invented, but it includes the bees knees. And he's got a little symbol next to it that says that that's the creation of the author. Um, and it's, it's, uh, kind of great. I'd love to read it to you if you'd like. Yeah, please. It's one of these, um, you know, really vintage books where it's hard to decipher the exact amounts, but it says in a shaker, the juice of one quarter lemon, a teaspoon of honey, one half glass of gin, shake well and serve. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called the bee's knees. And so it's, it's a very simple cocktail and that kind of sums it up. It's gin, lemon juice and honey. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a classic sour. You know, but there's something about, I think, the botanicals naturally in gin and in honey and the brightness of the lemon paired with juniper and gin that I, it's just an overall um, mm -hmm. delicious three ingredient cocktail. And, you know, basically we've 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 adopted measurements um, and we will get into a kind of more modern day iteration in a little while. But, yeah, the the, the formula remains the same, right? The three ingredients right there and they they continue to work so well together. Exactly. A couple of other things that I'd seen too, or I don't know whether you want to mention any of the other, the, the things that you've seen in Meyer's background. I know he has ties to kind of helping the French resistance during World War II, because this would have been, um, yes. yeah, a, a popular spot with some very high level uh, Nazis at the time. Is that correct? Yes, it was. Uh, they, some people call him the, the spy, you know, the bartender spy, which is pretty great because, you know, uh, as bartenders, we were a little bit become the mayor of the community in the sense that you hear a little bit of everything, right? You, not that we're eavesdropping on purpose, but there's people that open up to you at their bar, at the bar and they've had a couple of drinks and they're talking to each other, et cetera. And the story goes that it was a popular spot because it was, you know, a fancy, nice bar in Paris. It was a popular spot, but with the Germans and uh, Frank Myers was, was doing his, I think, hospitality thing and being polite and would serve them, but he was always making sure to take some notes and eavesdrop on kind of the conversations. And the, the story goes that he was able to help the French resistance a little bit with some information um, because of that, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> I think that's incredible. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think there's an alternate universe where um, Quentin Tarantino makes Inglorious Bastards around Frank Meyer's bar instead of maybe Shoshana and, and, the, and the movie theater. I want to see that one because also... Um, doesn't he, Meyer, eventually kind of fades away? People say that he maybe escaped or other people think that, you know, we, we ultimately don't know what happened to him in the end of his life. But, you know, I think Quinton would also have some fun with that, just kind of coming up with his own alternative ending. So I want to see that one, but maybe we'll never get that. That would be a pretty, pretty good uh, movie to watch for sure. It would be. 
it's possible that they, they found out what he was doing, that they found out he was part Jewish or something too, and they were, and he had to flee. I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. But it's also possible that he was, the only reason they were keeping him around was because the drinks were so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they didn't really, it didn't bother. Um, you know, we have the priorities here, even in war, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so in terms of this cocktail itself, you've spoken about the ingredients, but I was wondering if there's anything else that you think makes this a notable drink from the from from the get-go. Anything that stands out to you as the bee's knees is kind of its calling card. And yeah, what makes this a, a real notable cocktail? Sure. So I should I should mention that I'm um, I work for Caledonia Spirits Bar Hill Gin. You know, it's a raw uh, a gin made with raw honey, and so we're very familiar with the bees knees here. And I think sometimes the low um, small amount of ingredients makes you really have to get it right. You know, and it's so I talk a lot about the ingredients when I talk to people. Um, a, a quality gin, of course, um, the juice as fresh as possible. And a honey that's ideally raw to begin with. Um, we'll t- we'll talk about turning it into a syrup, but um, honey is a really incredible ingredient and a huge um, array of, of styles of honey, from you know commercially produced industrial stuff that's really simple syrup with just a little bit of coloring, um, to to really pure, unfiltered, unpasteurized, rich kind of botanical depth of wildflower foraged honey. Um, you know, I've, I've made some bees knees with honey from West Africa, with honey from Tanzania, with honey from South America. And it's, it's a vastly different cocktail. Wow. So the honey, the honey that you're using is, is, is really, is really huge. Um, it can, it just adds to the, the flavor and uh, really adds to the texture too. Um, you said what's important. So the, the three ingredients are important. And then of course the, the technique, um, since it is a simple sour, you know, we, we do classic here, uh, shaken. And served up in a coop with mm-hmm. a with a lemon twist, um, but because of that, it has a lot of same thing. It's such a simple presentation that, if not done correctly, it can fall very flat. You mm-hmm. know, so if it's not shaken really, really nicely and 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 vigorously, um, you can create some really nice foam through the use of a nice honey and fresh lemon juice. Mm-hmm. And so when you serve that coop and it's got that nice little level of foam, you know, without the use of egg white or anything, of course. Um, it just really craves that brightness, you know, it really wakes up everything in the drink when the texture has that kind of, um, small, tiny bubbles within the citrus and the honey. And that's something that really stands out to me too, just fast forwarding up to today and, and modern mixology and cocktails, because I think of a drink like the gold rush that I love. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we hear this described as basically, okay, this is a whiskey sour with, honey simple rather than simple syrup and no egg. For me, maybe, and ultimately this is pointless, but there's an argument to be made that the the gold rush shares a lot more in common with the bee's knees than it does the whiskey sour. Either way, yeah, I think, you know, maybe if we're talking about modern day relevance though. Sure, sure. I I would agree with that um, because that honey is so powerful. Um, I forget the one with rum. There's a rum kind of variation. I think it's called the honey bee. Oh, is a similar drink rum. I think it's three ingredients: rum, lime, and honey. I think that's amazing. And then tell us, tell us when you're when you're making this cocktail. You've you've hinted upon it, but when you're making this, just what are you looking for for the perfectly executed version of the bee's knees? Are we really talking um, just balance of flavors and texture? What are you looking from the texture specifically here? Sure. For the texture, and that's the technique of how the drink is made, right? How it's shaken, or if it's a different drink, how it's stirred. To me, is is one of the backbones of a real 
cocktail program is people executing the, the technique to make the drink before the ingredients and everything like that. So for example, a bee's knees with the perfect specs, et cetera, just kind of like poured over ice and served to you it would just feel very flat. It would feel very, um, the sweetness would come out in a different way. It would be kind of like clingy to you. It's just not as, as exciting as a, a one that's like shaken really nicely. Um, so the texture, I'm looking for that foamy texture, uh, when I'm sipping that, because I think it just really accentuates the, the flavors, um, in terms of the like ratios, um, you know, it's always, it depends on what spirit and what sweetener and everything we're using. So when I'm kind of, you know, doing like a cocktail one-on-one class with folks, I, I like to say that for any kind of sour cocktail, we start with like a two, one, one ish ratio, you know, two ounces of spirit, one of something sour, one of something sweet. And it might not be perfect, but it's a good place to start, especially for folks at home and stuff. Um, and then where the quote unquote, you know, science and, you know, quote unquote mixology comes into play is to really think about the spirit you're using and how do you, how do you, um, adjust accordingly. So with Bar Hill gin, you know, it has a little bit of richness in it. There's a little bit of residual sugar in the mm-hmm. gin. Um, it's, it's raw honey, which is our botanical note. The honey that's used is, um, has about a hundred, 150 wildflowers, uh, in there. So and can you explain it, the, the, the influence of raw honey there? This is, this is a gin I've been a fan of for a long time. And it's one that, you know, completely that honey note pops on the nose straight away. It's there on the palate. My, my personal interpretation of it is that the, the juniper and some of those other botanicals really kind of come through perhaps even slightly more in the palate, but it's really well balanced. But what, what do you mean when you're saying this is, this is a gin made with raw honey? Yeah, it's a good question. So as we know, or as maybe some listeners know, the gin needs to have juniper in it to be called gin. And so what other distilleries or any distillery is allowed to do is to make kind of any sort of botanical blend they want with juniper and and, and usually a grain alcohol or a neutral spirit and then redistill it. What we're doing is what at Bar Hill is is using just a single botanical organic juniper um, to make a, a very simple single note dry juniper spirits technically gin and then we're blending in a little bit of raw honey mm-hmm. and the idea with the raw honey is to not make it you know sweetened with raw honey it's a very small single digit percentage that's going in there but it's because the raw honey that we're using which all comes from 200 250 miles around the, the distillery so it's really regional very terroir driven has about 100 or 150 botanicals so on the one hand, we have one botanical juniper, but on the other hand, we have countless because of the honey. Wow. So it's kind of a creative way to, to, to bring about local um, botanicals through the gin um, by using that raw honey. You know, we were founded by a beekeeper originally who was <laughs> very passionate about bringing um, raw honey back to the world, which the definition of raw honey is just has never been heated up, upwards of a certain um, degree. Uh, I think it's 95 degrees. Did you know that the inside of a beehive is actually 95 degrees always? Oh, really? Even in the winter? Yeah. Wow. Hot, apparently. <laughs> Even in the winter here in Vermont, it's very impressive. And um, so, yeah, so that's how ours is associated. So when using Bar Hill Gin in a bee's knees, since it has a little bit more richness, instead of using a full ounce of, of, of a honey syrup, um, we do three-quarter ounce. Mm-hmm. Um and honey is an interesting thing to incorporate in cocktails. And I was surprised to see that in Frank Meyer's book, he says a teaspoon. And maybe because it's such a small amount, he's able to work with it. Yeah. We're usually adding 
honey directly into a cold drink doesn't work so well. It doesn't dissolve. You yeah. Know, so you'll be left with a bunch left in your shaker at the bottom of the glass or something. Even in your jigger. Exactly. And so, it's, and when we're working with raw honey, I mean, we open up the jar, we could turn it completely upside down. Nothing comes out. It's very thick stuff. Um, and in Vermont, it's always a little bit chilly, so it's definitely even harder. <laughs> <laughs> you want to stick that in the, you want to stick that back in the beehive for a couple of minutes, bring it up exactly. to temperature. <laughs> and so we do like a two parts and, and here we do it by weight actually. So kind of a two parts by weight, honey to water ratio. And we try to just cook it on a very, very low temperature, just enough to incorporate the water. If we start going too high and it comes to a boil, we start to lose a lot of, um, lighter uh, floral notes from the honey. Yeah. Um, so we try to be very careful when making our honey syrup and then we're just trying to dilute it enough so that we can incorporate it in. Um, and then Bar Hill Gin does have a heavy dose of juniper, which is very citrusy. So instead of a full ounce of the lemon juice, we'll do three quarters. So our kind of ratio has been two ounces of gin, three quarter lemon, three quarter honey syrup, mm -hmm. um, which with Bar Hill Gin is, is perhaps on the, the richer, rounder side, but I like it. Um, for this cocktail because it also means just bringing out more of those botanical notes like yeah. a really nice raw honey has the ability to add a lot of good flavor with since it's such a natural sugar it doesn't feel the same as a mm -hmm. too much simple syrup or something else you know and just to, to take two steps back there one second um looking at gin as a category itself um, for those listening kind of in real time. This is something that's been very exciting for me because I've just uh, done a lot of tasting for Vine Pair's annual gin roundup, which just came out recently. Nice. And just, you know, exploring that category and how it's evolved so much these days, this ability by producers to really highlight a sense of place, much like you're doing there at Bar Hill. But if we're, if we're going to break gin down into maybe two categories. You can look at maybe the London dry style and the new Western or American or new American or like, it's got a lot of different names. They're not specific to America. So sure. if you're approaching that, this cocktail using maybe, first of all, London dry, what are your considerations there in terms of just the ratios and, and what you're looking for, what that gin is adding to the drink itself? Sure. Um, yeah, and that's where really getting to know your your products you're working with is important, and, and tasting your honey and seeing how it affects with each with each gin. But you know, with London dries, they tend to be a little more on the citrusy side. I mean, in my opinion, um, so not going too high on the citrus is good. Depending on which one you're, I think those clock in at about forty six percent. I think right. A lot. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good sweet spot right there. Yeah. And, and so, uh, perhaps you would play around with upping the honey. It's, it's so, it's, it's one of those cocktails that is very hard to say, this is the amount you need because honey varies so much, even in bricks, you know, even in the sweetness, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we get our honey, it's about 87% uh, brick or 87 bricks or whatever it is. Um, then it can really change. You can get one that's just a little bit less sweet. So it's hard to kind of put a blanket statement over it, mm -hmm. like a simple syrup or something that's much more consistent or even a Demerara syrup or something like that. Um, but I think it works really well with many different types of gins. And, you know, the Western styles are so drastically different in their own right. I think it's a fun drink to maybe play around with you can mix different styles of gins that you see a lot in tropical cocktails with rum. Um, and thinking about how honey and botanical, which are always somewhat floral, um, work. You know, some Western gins that tasted a gin up in Quebec that is 
uh, made with mushrooms, for example, a very savory gin, maybe not the best for a bee's knees variation, maybe some other direction works better. So, mm-hmm. um, Frank Meyer was likely working with a London dry. Um, and so I think that the richness of the honey works well with a London dry for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, with the raw honey already present in the, in the bar hill or other old Tom style gin, sometimes it, um, can really just uh, make everything pop that much more. Mm-hmm. And just therefore working with that philosophy, maybe start with two one one and and go from there, try it out using those ratios and and you know adapt to that with with the rest of the ingredients that you have um when it comes to exactly. lemon juice do some research on whatever gin you're using, you know, and see what the botanical blend is and and just try to make an educated guess on if they're using a lot of a lot of juniper or other herbs that have a lot of citrus, maybe you don't need the full ounce of lemon, you can go a little bit lower mm-hmm. And I think that's a good point to note as well that like this is information that a lot of um, distillers are putting out there. It's on their websites. You can you can check it out. It might even be on the bottle. It's not always, but I think there is an understanding these days that among consumers, especially across the pond in the UK, where I think gin is even bigger than it is here in the US, mm-hmm. um, that botanicals matter and 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 people are keen to discover what's inside, what's giving their gin that unique flavor. Absolutely. And playing around with, like you said, even other spirits with the lemon and the honey, you know, we, we have our aged version here of Bar Hill Gin that's called Tomcat. So it sits in some new American oak, you know, and so when we do a bee's knees with that, of course, we call it the cat's pajamas, um, and a vastly different cocktail, you know, because we've now added the flavors of vanilla and caramel and, uh, butterscotch from the oak, but, mm-hmm. um, still works, works incredibly well. The yeah. honey and the oak gives a really nice pairing. That's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to preparing this this drink, do you want us talk? Uh, do you want to talk us through the the kind of build, the uh, the shaking? Maybe just going into a little bit more detail. You've you've highlighted the ratios that you'll be using there in the recipe. But what about when mm-hmm. it comes to ice for this shaker? Do you have any Good. preference? And then ultimately glassware. Sure. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's ultimately an amazing summer cocktail. It's very fresh. It's bright. Um, it's, it's not a cocktail that's meant to be pondered over for half an hour while you're sitting in a dark library. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a quick and easy one, but think about it in the sense of, um, every little detail matters, you know, so, you know, working backwards, starting with the glassware, if you can chill it even better, it's just going to add to the experience. Um, shake, we, yeah, the, those three ingredients added into the shaker with those kind of larger cubes. If you're at home, if you can find any sort of larger cubes, it gives you the ability to shake it really well and really long and add as much kind of texture as possible without over diluting it, which is really important. Um, you know, cause we're already adding lemon juice. We're already adding a honey syrup. So it's already, um, it doesn't need too, too, too much dilution, but it needs as much chilling and kind of froth creating as possible. So the bigger ice cubes give you that chance to, um, shake a little bit longer, get a little bit colder, get a little mm-hmm. bit frothier without over diluting. Um, and then for the garnish, you know, a big fat lemon twist. I love squeezing. If people started doing this a few years ago, I noticed and I love the trend of, of squeezing the oils kind of all over the glass, Yeah, you know, from a distance, not necessarily touching the glass, but squeezing the oils on the handle of the glass and everything. And it just adds that extra pop of a lemon essence that you can only really get from the peel. I think of this almost, um, just more intense kind of lemon oil flavor and once it gets on the handle of the drink people touch it you know they bring it the drink to their face and they kind of have more of that experience 
Um, so it's just like a fun little way to make it a couple steps up, a couple notches, you know, a little bit more thoughtful, chilling the glass, doing the oils along the glass, um, shaking really hard. And when we're pouring too, you know, a lot of bartenders will do kind of like they pour that shaker, like their right hand full with the shaker and the drink and the shaker, they'll pull it up to kind of have those pouring ribbons go higher. And it, it seems, you know, it's beautiful and, but it's not just for show, it's aerating the drink even more kind of on the way into the glass. So like everything you do, once you're done shaking needs to be quick, it needs to be vigorous, even to the point of the, the strain, you know, of course not overflowing or splashing the glass, but you're kind of catching it with your fine mesh strainer if you have one. So you're um, double straining then that you subscribe to that. Great. Yes. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, with double straining, so the, the main Hawthorne spring strainer is just holding back the most of the ice. And then the little fine mesh strainer, cone strainer is, is closer to the glass. And really what that's doing is catching mostly any leftover ice chips, you know? So we like to consider ourselves, you know, the uh, dilution masters, you know, at bartending, or at least we're trying to think always about what the dilution is happening while you're making drinks. And ideally when it's at the perfect dilution, perfect temperature, um, I subscribe to that <laughs> philosophy yeah. of taking out the ice chips, um, so that it doesn't continue to dilute as it's sitting there so that folks can, they don't have the, the, the texture of the cocktail doesn't have to compete with the texture of the little ice chips in your mouth. And for the garnish there, you mentioned that, that motion of expressing lemon over the glass in, you know, over the cocktail and the glass in different parts of the glass too. Where do you stand when it comes to that twist? Is that going in the cocktail or yeah i'm seeing a movement these days for people being like you know what i want to discard and discard movement yeah <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful phrase and uh and a beautiful technique for certain things you know a lot of egg white cocktails will do express and discard because i don't want to mess with the foam on top but i still want that aroma for the bees knees i like the lemon right in there um twist and drop it in it kind of uh it, it gives it a visual garnish and it also just gives, um, continues to kind of release its oil slowly, slowly as you drink and just keeps it as bright and as fresh as possible for as long as possible, which, um, usually mm -hmm. these drinks are so good. They don't last too long. And I think obviously you, you know, when we're, when we're preparing that twist, we're trying to leave as much pith as possible on the fruit, but I don't think it ever harms having a little bit of that too. And, ultimately adding a bit of complexity to the drink just with that very small amount, but getting more of the fruit involved in the drink. Sure. I agree. It, it is, it's, you know, we try to not get as much as the white pith on the peel as possible. Um, it's bitter, but it happens of course. And we're, 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 I'm not a, I'm not a hundred percent against it. Like you said, I think as long as you're using the outside of the twist to actually touch the rim of the glass with and not using the pith on the rim of the glass. Cause I've seen some folks do that. And that's, then you're actually rubbing the bitter part really on the lip, but the glass is kind of not, not ideal. Um, so as long as you're using the surface of the peel to touch the actual rim of the glass, and I think a little bit of pith on the twist while it's thrown in there is acceptable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what about, your ultimate glassware for this drink? Is this a coupe? Is this a Nick and Nora? Or do you have anything wackier? Yeah, that's a good question. We, um, a coupe for classic, you know, I tend to lean towards Nick and Nora's for stirred cocktails, a little bit smaller volume, a little bit more of kind of sophisticated looking. Um, the coupes are a little bit bigger. And so we like the coupes. Um, we have these little, uh, like glass bear jars mm -hmm. that kind of look like some, uh, 
it's kind of funny because it kind of symbolizes like this big like industrial honey movement with like the plastic <laughs> queen stairs, you know? And so we have those like glass versions that we're putting. Um, we actually put our frozen bees knees in that one. So a bees freeze, of course. A bees freeze. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's in the frozen drink machine. We got a frosty uh, factory and frozen drinks are a whole other world of science and complexity and per perception of flavor. They come out cold, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, um, very, very cold. And so the ratio is actually different on those. And we have a batch ratio, you know, in my file somewhere, but basically it's, it's, it's much more sugar. It's mm -hmm. much more honey, uh, and a little bit more citrus, um, because at drinks that are that cold, you can't taste this sugar as much. Um, so the, the ratio is much more of a, let's figure it out and taste it rather than just, it's not a one-to-one, -one, um, up, it's not a, uh, we're not just changing, we're not just increasing the proportions by mm -hmm. the same percent from a regular cocktail. So it's, that's a whole fascinating, uh, world. I sure. like that the name works just so seamlessly to the bees I know. freeze, you know, if, it, if you've got a name, if you've got an open goal like that, I'm going for it. I'm figuring it out. I'm making that right. work. Exactly. These freezes too easy. <laughs> so <laughs> the bear glasses, we had some fun um uh, a couple of years ago we did for so we do our bees knees week at the end of September, Bar Hill basically plants ten square feet of a pollinator habitat for every uh bees knees cocktail that's made and shared online. Nice. And uh the idea is that, you know, bees and pollinators are because of monocropping and industrial farming and you know, just um habitation loss. They're dying at an incredible rate and it's uh, super, um, you know, bad for us. It's about one third of everything on a food menu, on a restaurant food menu is actually pollinated, you know, um, wow. by pollinators. And so what can we do? And so we, um, I'm bringing this up because of the glassware. Yeah, we, we bought some funky um, kind of like honey dispensers, I think, but it was basically a glass bee with a metal head <laughs> and the, the wings kind of popped up to be able to serve your honey from but of course we put the cocktail in there a little flower coming out of it um and, and that was kind of fun we'd walk to the table like flying the little bee almost <laughs> that's very cool i mean these bees man they're 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 something else they're the bees yeah. knees they're the bees knees maybe that is what i was was wondering you know what what is so wonderful about the you know those joints on the legs of this this mm -hmm. what is it an insect animal creature yeah insect insects what, what is so good about the bees knees but the bees themselves are are wonderful creatures they're powerful the first time i i was around them in a in a beehive you know bee um apiary uh i got all dressed up and i never been this is a few years ago now um but we were do a little photo shoot making drinks with the bees and um they're out flying about and the beekeeper's there and the beekeeper has such a powerful relationship with their bees and they can hear by the pitch of the humming how they're doing you know they would tell me okay back off now a little bit they're getting a little aggravated or they say you know they're really calm right now it's no problem um and they produce a really meditative experience i think that humming that happens in the air it's really kind of a a, a lifetime memorable thing uh, spending some time uh, around these bees and how they work all together and just constantly buzzing and moving it's really powerful mm -hmm. yeah it's it, it's really incredible actually my dad as a quick side note here um he's you know winding down when it comes to work these days slowly mm -hmm. approaching that retirement age and he um last year started beekeeping and you know just in our garden our garden back home and a couple of small hives but some of the things he was telling me about are just incredible it blew my mind truly um 
One final glassware thought. What do we think Mare was using? Would he been going coop? That is a great question. I think so. Or some sort of Nicky Nora coop variation-ish type thing. Um, I haven't seen any pictures. And there's no drawings of a bee's knees in his book. So it's it's hard to know, I guess. But um, I'm sure we could probably find some other photos of some other similar style cocktails from that. I'll put that on my research list. Thanks for giving me some homework. Last time I was in Vermont, actually, I was dri- when I was driving back, I noticed that you have a ton of good like antique stores um, just along the yeah. way. And I made a few stops and got some incredible glassware for my for my home bar. So that was that was fun. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, great spot for that. Well, Sam, any final thoughts on the bee's knees here and this, this cocktail in particular or any of the things we've covered so far in the episode? I don't think so. Uh, just for folks to not be afraid to try it at home. Very simple. You know, sometimes people are afraid of fresh juice. I keep just fresh. I just keep full lemons at home and I have a reamer or just like a little hand juicer that I'll juice right into my jigger for fresh juice. Um, and the honey syrup too. If you make a little bit, they'll be afraid um to make a little extra you can keep it in the fridge nicely cover it for at least a month and you can kind of play around with the honey syrup as a sweetener for uh bees knees of course and other cocktails that sounds wonderful yeah fresh is best guys come on this is something Mm -hmm. we've learned uh, along (laughs) the way at cocktail college but never hurts to drive that one home yes Well, let's move into the final part of the show, Sam, here, where we get to know our guest a little bit more through our five weekly recurring questions. Are you ready for it? Please. (laughs) Let's let's kick it off. Let's, uh, yeah, let's buzz into this one. Question number one, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Sure. So, you know, our the cocktail bar I, I'm the beverage director at is within the distillery of Bar Hill. Um, <clears throat> so we have giant shelves full of Bar Hill spirits, of course. Um, uh, uh, other than that, what takes up the most uh, real estate is is, is definitely, um, I'm going to call them bitter and herbal liqueurs from around the world. So I don't want to say Amaro specifically because it's not just Italian. Um, and those kind of classic modifying agents, of course, like chartreuse and Campari and things um, are necessary for um, classic cocktails. So I'm going to try to call that out as a spirit category, even though it's Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, definitely, it's a, well, it's a, it's a category of, um, you know, that includes distilled spirits or it's, we're, we're talking higher ABV than, than say a wine or a beer here. Right, right. Um, question number two here. Which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Undervalued in a bartender's arsenal. You know what? Recently, what I've I've noticed is um, this is really just off the top of my head at point is I'm going to say a muddler. Actually, I think in the bartending at at bars, we tend to, of course, make a bunch of fresh syrups and and liquefy things as much as possible to be able to put them into cocktails quickly. Um, but I find myself at home bartending using my muddler all the time because I don't want to make a full raspberry syrup at home. I just want to grab a couple of frozen ones from the freezer, throw them in my shaker with some honey syrup, muddle them and um, put them away. So I, I've been kind of like sharing that with a lot of more enthusiasts than, you know, um, actual trade bartenders. But yeah. I, I find it to be so great instead of, you know, sometimes you see uh, on recipes, a rosemary syrup or a, 
serrano pepper syrup or something. And instead of going through the whole thing of trying to make that recipe before you even make your cocktail, you can try just using simple syrup in your shaker and muddling a little bit of the rosemary or the other thing. And so I do that a lot. Yeah, and, and the freezer, the freezer fruit too. If you can get good quality frozen fruit like raspberries that are whole, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm all for that. Totally. Question number three: What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, as you know, this industry can get a little dramatic. <laughs> one of my first mentors, her, her name's Leslie, at one of the first restaurants I worked at, I was getting all upset about something i don't remember at this point but she said you know sam just you got to focus on yourself you know focus on what you're doing try not to compare yourself to anyone else focus on your education um focus on your work ethic and eventually you know uh things have a way of weeding themselves out and and the folks that are serious about certain things um ideally are are kind of making their way through what they want to do um and then the, the even more and just as importantly what i try to remind my bartenders here I have it written in my manual is I think the sign of a real true professional bartender or anyone is uh knowing when to ask for help you know it's hard to see sometimes bartenders starting to drown in the well and getting three deep at the bar and all they had to do was lift their head and walk over and ask you know the manager or server to come help them or help them go get something and I think it's easy for folks to get really overwhelmed when they're doing it as a novice um, bartender to get like overwhelmed by all the pressure of the guests but knowing that it feels like you're alone behind the bar, but you're not really like we can all jump in to help you. Yeah, so. you might be in your well there, but you, you you have help around. And yeah, it's a team effort, yeah. guys. Totally. Question number four, penultimate question right here. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? This one was tough. Um, I think I ended up going more on the sentimental side of things. I think inevitably a, a bar is about community and about who you're at the bar with um, rather than necessarily what you're drinking. Of course, we'd like to drink good cocktails always. Um, but I, I, there's a bar in my little neighborhood that I live at here in Vermont and Winooski. It's, it's, it's nothing fancy, but it's just a really um, community-driven bar and they host Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving and it's just consistently open even in a blizzard. And I know that I can walk into that bar alone and always find a friend um, that can, you know, talk to um, it, it's called monkey house <laughs> in Minuski. And so it's not on the, you know, 50 best bars of America, but it's a, a true community driven bar. And I think, you know, I've always gotten into this industry. I'm obsessed with the cocktails and passionate about flavors and, and history of cocktails and love all of that. And so if you can bring that into a community focused bar, then you have a win-win. Um, so I'm going to say that, you know, my favorite bar, my last bar to visit would likely be the bar where I would find the most community. I've just I've just added walking into a bar during a blizzard, perhaps in Vermont, onto my bucket list. That's what yes. I want to be doing. Even better, you can snowshoe to a bar during a blizzard. <laughs> or cross-country ski. I've seen it happen here. Wow. And then maybe, you know, <laughs> you, you end up stuck in there for, for a night or two. Who knows what happens? But uh, Who knows? it's got the fire roaring. Yeah. Bring, bring on winter. Really? Bring it yes. back. Um, final question for you today, Sam, if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, mm-hmm. what would you order or make? I thought about this one pretty long too. And I think my first instinct is always the best. And it was, in my opinion, a gin, 
uh, a gin heavy Negroni, ideally even a Bar Hill gin or the Tomcat gin heavy Negroni with, with a nice, um, sometimes I like to do at home, even a, a chunk of orange. So even a little squeeze of a couple drops of orange in there. I feel like in Europe, they do, they do that a little bit more than here at the twist. Um, but I think that's what I would do. And I would probably make it a double. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what, what ratio, when you're saying gin heavy there, just curious to hear what ratio yeah. you're using. I like to just uh, to make the whole drink overall a little bit bigger. So I do one and a half gin to one sweet vermouth, one Campari. Very so one nice. and a half, one, one. Yeah. And I, I, I think that does bring the, it's basically whenever we ask this question, it's, it's the gin martini or the Negroni vine for top spot between, you know, like now in terms of the ongoing tally. So another I'm one wondering. for the Negroni here. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I, I figured I wouldn't be alone in that one. Um, so sorry if it's not quite as exciting <laughs> no not at all sam on the contrary in fine company you are cool cool great well thank you again for taking the time to hang out with us today at cocktail college and for yeah an incredible deep dive on the bees knees and just honey and bees incredible really uh, always a pleasure tim and um, hopefully you can come visit us here in vermont and we'll give you a little tour and i'll make you a cocktail sounds wonderful um i'm gonna save that one for winter and the blizzard great Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>